Welcome to Concord Matters, a show seeking for concord, agreement in Christian confession. Concord mattered to Jesus and Paul, and so it does to us also. Spend these next 60 minutes as we talk matters of Concord. Concord Matters, a program produced by the Christ-centered leader in confessional broadcasting. Worldwide KFUO, online at kfuo.org. And welcome to Concord Matters. If Pastor Fisk would just turn on my microphone, we will talk about how we shall be of one mind, that is the mind of Christ. We have most of our usual cohorts of Christ-confessing Concordians here today. Pastor Jonathan Fisk, who fails to turn up microphones and turn down music. And Pastor Peter Hill and myself as host, Pastor Sean the, Smith. The music is awesome behind you it right is. now. It sounds really good. <laughs> it's, the, it's good music. When, when you take, you know, we take a week or two off for Christmas and you come back, sometimes the buttons, you don't remember what order they go in. <laughs> yeah. there's, there's flashy lights in front of you. So I mean, I'm pretty sure just... I turned on that microphone that has nobody sitting at it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if, if Mr. Peter Slayton were here with us uh, today, but he's he's busy. He'll he'll be out all month. Uh, he's uh, dealing with uh, March for Life. Yeah. Uh, yeah. things as he's covering that for the LCMS uh, social media realm and and great job on doing that too I mean we love having him on show with us but uh, as that's as his real job yeah, yeah I that's mean, his this, primary vote well, well and, one and of a his very important yeah. event to, to cover and an important uh, issue uh, that we care very much about uh, not just we in this room but uh, as a church body as well so so we uh, we commend him to that work and uh, we'll try and push on without him and uh, but thanks for turning up uh, the mic for nobody Um, instead of, you know, me so that I could talk. Welcome to Concord Matters, a giant game of who's on first. Yeah. Yeah. Well, welcome to Concord Matters, where even nobody can learn to confess. No, (laughs) I don't know if that works. Yeah, Uh, I don't don't like this. This is spiraling downward. This is probably a good time to, like, jump into the text or something. (laughs) To remember that we (laughs) have one. Exactly. Well, this is the show where we discuss the text of the Book of Concord, hmm. where we seek to be of that one mind, that Lutheran confession of the words that Christ has given us in Holy Scripture. And uh, and so we are in the Apology to the Augsburg Confession. Uh, we've been in it for quite some time. Um, and and if, if you guys looked ahead, um, today we're actually going to get to return to that chief article once again that article on justification and how it destroys the articles that we are talking about which are on the church which is articles seven and eight uh and uh in the concordia readers edition that i have the second edition it is on page 146 that we're picking up today paragraph 21 uh but uh this flows forth just to set up kind of attention um that they're they're talking about what i'm gonna call the tension of the invisible versus the visible church. And we talked about that last month when we were on uh, what those churchy terms, official terms mean, uh, you know, that we have the true church, which is made up of all uh, the saints in Christ, you know, and uh, that is, that is the, 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 uh, I'm just, 
hesitating to use words because I don't want to sound too reformed, but the elect in Christ, the, the true saints in Christ that are called and redeemed. Calvinist. And, You're yeah, a Calvinist. Yeah, I, I can tell. I knew you were going to say it. That's why I was hesitating. But uh, um, so, yes, we have we have the true church uh, and then we have the visible church that we do have in this earthly realm, which includes all of those saints who are of the true church. Uh, but we also recognize from the parables um, of Jesus, even especially the one with the, the tares or the weeds and the wheat, you know, that there are ungodly intermingled in with what we visibly see in the church. And we're going to even talk about how that's inner, even intermingled in with the people who lead the church. Um, and uh, they would certainly be saying that about the Church of Rome at that time, a good number of their leaders and so forth. But uh, they're talking about this this tension. And right before this, in paragraph 20, they use this this kind of, again, kind of technical term, uh, and he's being a little snarky with it. You know, he talks about, you know, the church doesn't, doesn't just exist in a platonic state, but it, it actually does exist. It is made up of the believers, the true believers who are scattered all throughout the world. It is, it can be found here in visible uh, terms. Uh, but uh, I, I, I've been talking here for a little while. You guys can jump in at any time. Talk about this, what I'm calling the tension of the invisible versus the visible. Because the, uh, the the adversaries, the Church of Rome, had kind of only been talking about, you know, that there's this kind of true church thing uh, and that uh, it's not really you know, so much there present. A lot of this is, goes back to this platonic idea of philosophy that goes back to the Greek philosopher Plato. Uh, Sorry, I should be a little more specific with my articulation. Plato, uh, to be distinguished from Plato, the the fun stuff that you use uh, as modeling clay. Anyway, uh, Plato would teach that something was seen in its most pristine or idealized form, and so you can have a an ideal sense of what something should be. And as folks are talking with this idealized or platonic sense of the church, they're thinking, well. In a perfect world, this is what the church is. And they start to paint a picture of the church that isn't really realistic because they have this idealized reality and this ideal reality doesn't exist, at least not on this side of the resurrection. And as they would start to speak about the church, they would begin to have these lofty ideas of what the church is and does. And then it would become apparent, oh, wait. This doesn't really exist, and it won't ever exist, at least not before Jesus comes back, if ever. And they disconnected the church from the souls of God's people and from God's people in general. And what Christ calls a her, the bride of the bridegroom who looks in faith to Christ, became an it, a disconnected, disembodied source. And that disconnected, disembodied church wasn't real, didn't really exist, and it became an entity that people would talk about, but that nobody could really talk to, and that couldn't speak uh, in common confession to itself or to others at all. It was uh, just kind of this abstract idea off in the sky. And that's some of what the the Rome's... uh accusation is is that that's what lutherans were trying to teach right this this abstract church where everybody's perfect rome had a way though of defining the church very very tangibly it was rome right if you are with the bishop of rome 
you are the church. Church Inc. Yeah, right. And, and that that was the only way of talking about church. And this tension that, that Pastor Smith, you, you want to kind of dwell on here, in which there is no platonic or play-do-onic, play-donut church. There, there is no ideal, <laughs> idea-only church, is a recognition that the Bible talks with the word church in two different ways. It talks about the elect of God, glorious, perfect, with no problems whatsoever, which you don't see, you believe, by faith, even though they are real people in the present. And then it talks about where those real people in the present gather around the things that make them pure and clean, which are the promises of God, and recognizes, though, that in that gathering, there are, them, there are some who are not elect. And, and, and that doesn't mean that God didn't choose them. That means they've chosen not to believe, right? There are those who do not believe. So you have this visible gathering. That's the church. And then you have this body of believers throughout time and space. That's the church. And they're not two different churches, but they kind of are two different edges of this thing we call church. And as I dance around it as well and run out of words to say, you know, the struggle is holding that tension together without either dividing it and picking just one and sticking with that or smushing together in such a way that, that we destroy the tension. Yeah. And I often say, I mean, the, the nature of the Christian life, or I, I usually say the nature of the Lutheran life, which I mean that Christian life is, is one of holding things in tension. There's a lot of paradoxes all throughout scripture, you know, kind of well, law and gospel, you know, we have these, these things that seem opposed and so forth. And, and, and it becomes very easy to fall off to one side or the other mm-hmm. and, and, and to fall from one side, you know, Oh, I'm falling off this side. And so then you fall all the way to the other side. And I see this happening with the church of Rome as we read through the confessions here and so forth, that they really do kind of fall off to both sides at different times. Hmm. Uh, and, and they think that the Lutherans are falling off. And at times, you know, we perhaps even in our own denomination here at times could be tending towards one side or the other. And so we have to be very careful as we hold this, time, uh, this thing in tension. And I think you said it well, it's, it's not two churches. It is the church. Um, and, and it's these realities, um, of, of the way scripture talks about the mm-hmm. church. And, uh, and that's very helpful. And I, and I think it, it unfolds in a whole lot of different things. Uh, one where we're going to see here very shortly for Rome, uh, when you don't hold that tension, is it becomes the the church ink. I mean, so much so that I mean, their their whole goal is to not just be church authority, spiritual authority, but also have political authority. Right. And so that's one way it goes here uh, soon too. But it also plays into the the issues of good works and so forth, because in the idealized church, you have these fruits of faith that come forth from the true believers. And when you see the intermingled in ungodly amongst that, and you don't see them, you tend to work and try and manipulate these things to get them. And, and it becomes very easy to identify the church. And I think we see this tension even in America still today. To identify the church as, you know, oh, I want the church that is really active in missions. Well, that's not the church. Yeah, we want to compel what the church that we see to be the church we believe in, right? right? And yeah. we, and the the trick there, we were kind of talking about this before. People fall then fall back on the law to make that happen, right? As if that's yeah. the thing to really make the church run and work in the ideal, the platonic, the perfect way, rather than believing that it's perfect in the first place and holding that tension of faith in sight, which is is very much the tension of visible and and invisible. Yeah, and, I, and well. Go ahead. And I think as we talk about the church, visible and invisible, there's also the question of perspective. 
in part, the invisible church that we talk about is invisible to us here, but it is the church as it is seen by God. Hmm. And it is the church defined by God. But from our human perspective, we see what we call would call the visible church. And as we look at it from below, from this side of the resurrection, then we simply say, well, gee, uh, I don't. I can only talk about what I can see. I can't talk about those things of faith that are known only to God. And so I think in part this visible-invisible distinction that we make is a question of perspective, of what it is that that we can see and know, because there is a lot about the Hmm. church that we can't see and can't know. It is only to God, and that's okay. It makes us, as people, though, really uncomfortable, and the scripture does talk about church, and so we speak about what we can see and what we can know, knowing that we don't have the whole story here. I really, really like that, that that the invisible versus visible is the church God sees versus the church we see, and and they are the same, and yet in the church we see there is still sin, but the church, Uh I really like that way of talking about it. Yeah, well, and I think it honors scripture, you know, because what we have revealed to us in scripture is God's perspective, if you will, what he has allowed us uh, to know. (laughs) He's revealed it to us. Uh, And so, you know, when we talk about scripture in this, uh, or when we talk about the church as scripture talks about it, there we get that perspective of God. Um, but so often as sinners, we're, we're prone to talk about the church from our perspective mm-hmm. instead of that godly scriptural perspective. And there's even more not revealed to us in scripture of the perspective that God has of the church. And as, mm-hmm. that is a great way. He actually kind of reminded me of, of this really great theologian. It was around the 1800s that would talk about this tension oh, that way. No. His name's CFW Walther. Oh, uh, oh first Walther I, mention. Oh, I thought you were talking about Charles Burfield 2018. <laughs> <laughs> I had to work him in there, but, but Walther does, you know, the, the true and visible um, uh, uh, church. Uh, he has theses on this that, that really it's do like a, talk like about that like a whole book about it, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's theses that have been published as a book as for, a, for okay. us. Later. Yeah. But we should like, it's quite excellent. Read that sometime or something. People should. Yeah, they, they should. You can, you can get it available through CPH and I'll take commission on it. No, I get no commission from CPH. All right. But I think we should dig into the text of how we're talking about this here. Peter Ill, the world cannot hear you doing that. And and they should because it's funny and it's valuable. As as you said to me before, Pastor Fisk, you said nobody can shrug as well on the radio as you can. (laughs) And I I think that's a compliment. Uh, And I'm going to take it as as one. Yeah. Um, Anyway, deep thoughts on CFW Walther. And church and ministry notwithstanding. Are we ready? I, I was talking about different theses. The true invisible form of the congregation. Oh, 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 oh. Different theses oh, than like church those. and ministry. Okay, good. Yeah. Okay. And and actually, church and ministry is two different sets of theses it as is. well. It is. Published in one book. But we'll have to deal with we'll, all of that another we'll day. We'll dork out about that another day. All right. Maybe. Let's, let's, let's push forward here, though, uh, as we get back into the Apology of the Augsburg Confession. Uh, articles 7 and 8 of the church or also apparently four, I have that in parentheses there, Uh, picking up paragraph uh, 21. The writings of the Holy Fathers declare that sometimes even they built stubble upon the foundation, but that this did not overthrow their faith. But most of those errors do overthrow their faith. Our adversaries defend these errors. 
Among them is their condemnation of the article about the forgiveness of sins. Oh, right back there again, that article. Yeah. No one expects the article on justification. <laughs> it just, it works into everything. All right. Uh, let me continue reading, then we'll come back and pick this up. In which we say that the forgiveness of sins is received through faith. Likewise, it is clear and a deadly error when the adversaries teach that people merit the forgiveness of sins by loving God before grace. This is an example of removing the foundation, Christ. Likewise, we do. why do we need faith in the... Wow, I just totally got twisted around there. I should not try to read through the microphone. Picking back up again. Likewise, why do we need faith if the sacraments justified by the outward act? without a good motive on the part of the one using them. Just as the church has the promise that will always have the Holy Spirit, so it also has warnings that there will be wicked teachers and wolves. Hmm. I'm going to pause there just because it goes on and talks about that a little bit uh, more in depth, but I want to back up and pick up. All right, so flowing forth from talking about kind of that 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 true and visible uh, uh true and invisible uh, versus the visible church in that section talking about the visible church. um, It was talking also about how, you know, there were those and at different times because of the matter of essentials versus non-essentials, which we didn't really talk about, but those that are things that are a part of the true church, what the church really is. Um, And we talked about some of this before versus those things, you know, outward traditions and things like that, that are not uh, talked about in there about how, you know, sometimes the church gets built upon some stubble, some, some non-essentials, some traditions and things that are are not the greatest um, uh, foundation because it's not the true church yet it it starts here talking about the holy father sometimes they built on stubble but it didn't really unravel the church but here they have the tension that some of this quickly unravels and actually becomes erroneous egregious error rather Hmm. and uh and so just picking up kind of cold in the paragraph there it's in the middle of this thought and so just to explain some of that background but i as a parish pastor, I, I recognize this sometimes, you know, you do things, uh, you know, to try and, and, and point and orient folks towards the church, which is gathered around Christ, his word, his sacraments. Uh, and, and you sometimes do some traditions and so forth that aren't so helpful because they're not understood and things like that. Uh, and, and it's always important to teach, but, um, you know, some of these things can quickly unravel and you always have to be very careful when you're using these things. Um, uh, or, or introducing things, especially um, that uh, can quickly unravel into error, and so that's that's the tension that they're talking about here. Is you know just because you know stubble has been able to be withstood and the church remains because it is the church, it is Christ. Not even the gates of hell can prevail against it. Um, that doesn't mean that we allow error. Just because we can survive false teaching doesn't mean we should seek it out right. and endure it <laughs> right. on purpose, right. right? If you can live under an evil man, that's great. Do you really want to? And, and that's applying that now to our understanding of, of truth, basically. And it, it seems that these things aren't done because we're tired of the gospel and we want to go be false teachers, but rather these things are, they seemed like a good idea at the time, which kind of leads to a, for me, a question, what are good 
questions to evaluate if a practice is built on the foundation of Christ, our cornerstone, or if it's built on, on stubble that can quickly unravel? What kinds of questions should, should pastors and lay people, too, ask about uh, the practices of the public life of the church in order to kind of sort through that? I think it, where, where it quickly unravels, if I can, if I can suggest this, is with the question, and we are talking about offer now. We're not talking about those things instituted by Jesus, right? With, with all the other things that we can do because they're good and they should point us back to Jesus, the moment we start to say that we need it, do we need it? So let's just throw that question at the organ, okay? We, when you stop asking, is the organ valuable? And start asking or saying, no, 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 we can't get rid of the organ because we need it. It wouldn't be church without it. We have now descended into rank heresy because we've denied the article on justification. We've added to Christ justifying work this other thing. And organ I use because it's just an easy thing to kick, right? And I actually am for it in general. But use that question with dealing with Annie, stop smiling loudly on radio, Peter Hill. You throw me off. We can use that question, do we need it, to to handle any of these traditions that we have once thought were good ideas that may or may not be good ideas now. I could give you more, but I, I don't... I, well, I just, I just received feedback. Uh, that's why I was smiling loudly. Okay. Uh, vestments, duh. Yeah, uh, sure. As somebody commented to me and said, uh, the second that we say, you can't really have church unless you're vested in a certain way or unless you're not vested in a certain way. Or... Uh, I'll give another example from my, my past since I'm no longer in the parish. I can get away with this a little bit here. There was a time in which the congregation I was at was discussing whether or not to continue the Christmas pageant. There's a tradition that they'd have, but they really didn't have the the volunteer staff to pull it off anymore. There were only a few people left. But those people that were left said, we can't not have it because if we don't, how will the children ever learn the Christmas story? This is to say that without Christmas pageants, there is no faith in children, right? Now, that this individual didn't realize what a what a horrible error that was and how quickly, if we actually actually believe that, it would, it would lead us into ruin, right? And that's where the, the distinction, look, the, the stubble can be there and not destroy us until we start really believing it, right? That we, that we must indeed have this thing and then start applying it, teachers teaching it. Can you imagine a pastor who literally says, you must have Christmas pageants or you're not Christians, right? And at that point, everything's falling apart. Well, and to, to take that same situation and talk about the extremes that we really have with this because to the other end what you can have is by having christmas pageants it really becomes more a worship of our children and how cute they look and can things be. like that yeah uh, i mean we can fall off on so many different sides of this right and it become can be very dangerous and so i think you know to to answer your question pastor ill i think it is to answer by asking questions i mean that 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 is my approach, you know, the, the unexamined life is really just so poor and, and, and to examine why is it we're doing what we're doing and is it achieving the things that we desire t- it to achieve? Namely, does it point us to Christ right. or does it point us away from Christ and to something else? Well, then maybe we need to evaluate its position there and things like that. And, and we, and we have to weigh these things. And because 
we're fallen sinful human beings, a lot of times our emotion gets so caught up in these things that have been traditions for us. And maybe they're even only recent traditions that go back one generation and not multiple generations. And, you know, there's just so many things that play into it that make it a very difficult thing to do, especially in community with more than you know, just a few people. Um, but, but it is the very nature of what we must do in the church, uh, with these traditions, with these things, um, that, that we introduce and use to point to Christ. We have to examine, we just have to ask questions. And, and I think these are the kind of questions that we ask, you know, is, is it serving the purpose of pointing to Christ, the true church, the work that he is doing, or is it pointing us to something else or is it working, you know, those sorts of things. If I may condense your question a little bit, perhaps kind of that controlling matrix question of is this something that is built on Christ the cornerstone or not would be, well, you could just ask that. Is this, how does this teach Jesus the cornerstone of our faith? Um, and if if there's a long or convoluted answer to that question, maybe this isn't a great practice or maybe your way of speaking about this practice isn't, isn't the most helpful and maybe... Maybe there's some more thought called for there. Yeah. I I'm, I might disagree with at least the way that you worded. Okay. I don't know if it's really quite the thing. You know, by by saying if it's a long convoluted answer, I, I don't know if that's true because again, I just was referencing Walther's theses sure. where we're wrestling with these very matters, especially in our early church. I think that we can have very detailed study in scripture, and I think the church would benefit more from evaluating deeply these things. From I should I shouldn't have to defend how the practice points to Jesus, it should do it though, right? Right. Like, I mean, you know yeah. what I'm saying? Yeah. I'm not disagreeing with you, but right. but like in terms of the, asking the question about the thing, like I don't want anything to get between me and Jesus except for the things he says are between me and him. Bread, wine, words, water, right? That's it. Mm-hmm. Between me and him are those things. I want those things. Everything else either is pointing me back to those things and it's evidently doing so and we can see it or that's the danger is it's evidently in the way. And when we say we need it and then we get angry if somebody would take it away, we, we are we are attributing to it more power to justify than is good. And and to recognize that this is so natural to us. We all do this. This is you're not you're not a worse Christian because you build an idol. We all do this. Then to be willing to to have our idols torn down and to tear down our idols together for the sake of the present, for the sake of the gathering in the moment. And investments may or may not help that at various times and places. Organs may or may not help that at various times and places. I, I don't think they're bad things right now, but we have to be able to have the question and not put our trust in things that are not what Jesus commanded. One of the things that I get to do at, at the parish that I'm serving at is to talk with uh, God's people about why do we do what we do? Uh, why why do we use these pyramids that are this way? Why do we, um, why do the pastors wear vestments? Why do we use an advent wreath? And why is the third one rose, pink, take your pick. Uh, and, and to walk through those very things of, do these things point to Christ? And if so, how? And, and I, it's all about keeping it simple. If in these practices, these adiaphora that, that are to point to Christ, if it, there's not a pretty concise way of getting to Christ, then it's going to be confusing. Yeah, and 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 even to the point here, just kind of bring it back to their original thought. That I think the main thrust then is, you know, when we get to a point where it's obviously error, we've we've really got to 
take more drastic measures. You know, you can you can teach a child not to go touch the hot stove, but when they're going over and touching the hot stove, we're at a much more dangerous level, and we need some stronger intervention. And so that's where we'll pick up, and that's the this is where the the Lutherans are pushing us as we take a break. We'll come back and pick this up. This week on Issues Etc., we'll study the hymn, O God, Our Help in Ages Past, with Pastor Brian Wolfmiller. We'll look forward to Sunday morning talking with Dr. Carl Fakencher of Concordia Theological Seminary about the boy Jesus in the temple. And we'll have Pastor Tom Baker lead us in a Sunday school lesson on Dorcas in Acts chapter 9. Issues Etc., live weekday afternoons from 3 to 5 on KFUO. Proverbs twenty-seven seventeen tells us, Iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another. That's why weekday mornings at 8 a.m., two Missouri Synod pastors test their metal against the Holy Scriptures, certain that not only will they come out better for it, but so will you. The sword of the Spirit is sharp to the touch, but you need practice wielding it. Check out Sharper Iron, 8 a.m., every weekday on Worldwide KFUO. Lamplighter Theater launches its biggest production yet. You might even call it Giant. <laughs> Presenting the Giant Killer. Join Fidus in his fight against the giants of sloth and selfishness, hate and untruth, and pride. To take down giants like these, Fidus needs wisdom and a special weapon. And so will you. A must-listen for your family to conquer the giants in your life. The Giant Killer. Saturday mornings at 11 on Worldwide KFUO. This coming week is interesting for law and gospel on the basis of what readings to examine. Saturday is Epiphany. Sunday is the second Sunday after Christmas and is also the baptism of our Lord. Tune in to the next law and gospel. Weekday mornings beginning at 9.30 on KFUO. From legendary greats like Vince Lombardi to more recent football stars like Mike Singletary and Ray Lewis, the Bible has been an influence in American football. Mark Richt, in his career as an NCAA Division I football coach, often cited the book of Proverbs. He said, if anyone would take the challenge of reading a proverb a day, you're going to get wiser. It's good stuff. Winning championships was important to Mark Richt, but he looked to the Bible for true inspiration in his role as a coach. He said, I just want to do things in a way that I think God would be pleased with me. I know if I do that, I'm blessing the players I'm in charge of. Mark's son, John, quoted his dad. As for me, in my house, we will serve the Lord. You know, that was always something that he preached to us. He wanted us to, to learn and grow in our faith. Engage with the Bible with this book of all books. Brought to you by Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C. And welcome back to Concord Matters, where Pastor Fist remembered to turn my microphone on. We are back from Christmas break. I know how now. Talking about the church and uh, the real essential matters of the church, which is really all about Jesus. And that's what we're here about in this show really all about Jesus, talking about him. But as we were just talking, and I think our conversation carried over into the break pretty good, and I kind of want to let 
folks into that a little bit yeah. here. But yeah. we're, we're talking about just these, these tensions of, you know, these essential things when it comes to human traditions, the, the adiaphora matters, the, the things that are neither commanded nor forbidden in Scripture, uh, but that we use in the church to point to Jesus. Um, and, and then, you know, evaluating how you use those things. And, and we just kind of came in, in our off off air break uh, conversation there uh, to to a really helpful point I think where he said you know I mean the reality is, is it just gets really messy sometimes mm. on all ends because you you evaluate what what were the words that you used again it already slipped my mind um, correlation and correlation and oh, correlation causation, causation yeah. right you know and what has it caused or you know are there correlated issues that are tying into this and sometimes. You know, you, you recognize, you know, th- this could really quite get messy on, on all different sides and it can almost be paralyzing. And I think some churches are there, you know, as we evaluate some of the practices that we have. And because it's just like, well, then there's no perfect answer. And I, I've actually heard this a good bit kind of in my own personal life and ministry, too. I'm going to pause you for a second. Yeah. There's no perfect answer is evidence of platonic kind of idealized thinking. Exactly. The second you start looking for that perfect answer, you're you're separating it from what is to what is ideal, what is out there abstractly somewhere. And I think it's important to call platonic thinking out. Absolutely. Um, and, and so that's where we have to wrestle with, you know, th- there's there's work to be done and, and, and we need to to live in this broken kingdom. Right. Um, but but I think it becomes a very paralyzing thing when we start evaluating all the things that get tied in with the practices that we used and how they can go wrong or how they do go wrong and maybe not serving the purposes and then maybe putting too much trust in them. And, and it just becomes a very paralyzing right. thing. One of the challenges, I think, as a pastor is you start to see that it's not all correlation. You start to see that some of the patterns that we've we at one time were maybe a good idea have in fact become things that are causing problems in mm-hmm. in the present right. time right and then having a conversation with that or about that especially when the 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 tradition of the community the visible congregation that you have has come to to hold those things very very dear almost to the level of necessity but not quite there yet but kind of feeling that way about it uh, and I, I don't i don't know that we want to go further into examples but to see that what we're dealing with here, we're talking about error, is that there is error that sometimes subsists in a correlated that is next to the church, but it's not actually harming anything yet. And then there's error that begins to cause the harm. All of it's bad, but once it started to cause the harm, the preacher's job is to call that out loud and fast. Sometimes he'll let the correlated error sit there for a moment because no one's even really being hurt by it, right? Am I, am I kind of doing yeah. the right thing? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that there, well, not I think. There is, point blank, a promise that within the church there will be false teaching. Ah. And we have, we have this kind of baseline minimalism of, well, all churches and all denominations are all more or less saying the same thing. And we're, we're okay with, with all of our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we really don't have any great problems or challenges with the teachings that are contradictory to ours within these other fellowships. And when we get down to it, the teaching about who Jesus is and what Jesus does and what the Christian life looks like begins to be uh, compromised. And when that begins to be compromised, we have problems in River City um, and in Christ's church. Well, it, can, can I jump in Please here do. and give yeah. an example that I think would be really helpful and I think it's large enough that it, it doesn't play into any specific 
situations that would be uncomfortable. It's the the pro-life movement, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, So we have the March for Life coming up, and there will be Christians of every denomination and even some Mm -hmm. non-Christians, you know, gather at this March for Life in Washington, D.C. and so forth. And we there proudly stand alongside and are working in the trenches against this egregious error that is held by our culture that is murdering babies. Point blank. This is terrible. This is a situation where we need to step in and do something you know, in an active way, as before we went to the break, I gave the example of, you know, when we have this egregious error, you know, the, the child, you know, you can teach, you know, don't go touch the stove and things. But when they're actually over there and they're going to harm themselves, you step in and you do something physical to keep them from that harm. Right. And, and we have this this error. And so there we're going to stand alongside our brothers and sisters in Christ. We do believe that they are Christians. Mm-hmm. They they're of heterodox fellowships and hold some things in error on the truth of God's word, and I'll get there in a second, but we're going to stand alongside them for this this really bad thing that we need to address. Hmm. But then as it comes to, you know, uh, sharing a worship service together with the Roman Catholics, just because they're so big at the March for Life, I know, I mean, the, the Rome really, you know. They, they helped, bring the goods. Yeah, they bring the goods on this, yeah. and they got the resources to back it up. And, um, and, and so, you know, we stand alongside them, but are we going to hold a worship service together with them and act like we have perfect agreement in our confessions of faith? No, because we actually have some very big disagreements on what God's word says and some very key issues, namely some of the things we're talking about here, you know, the doctrine of justification. We still don't have agreement there uh, ever since the Reformation. And, and there are some very egregious errors because they unravel, as we'll see here in just a second, back then and still by their doctrine today. You know, what Christ is even for. And we talked about that for a year as we went through Article 4. And so I think this is one of those situations where, you know, we, we, we live out this tension. And we say, you know, what, you know, maybe maybe it's more what you said earlier, Pastor Fisk, with, you know, I'm, I'm going to kind of ignore this correlated error for a second because we have this bigger, more egregious error uh, that needs to be dealt with. Um, and so, you know, you just kind of live those things out in the tension and you got to hold it in tension, but you don't just, you know, kind of throw your hands up and say, well, you know, it's just all hopeless because, you know, again, when, when you make that move and it becomes paralyzing as I think it does for a lot of Christians. And I've even felt it in my own life a good bit. You just feel so paralyzed. What you have in mind is that platonic ideal. And that's just a bad place to be starting from. Or you can, and you can flip that example to the other side too, and say, well, it is necessary that everybody who's a member of this congregation be actively pro-life and involved in the pro-life movement. Uh, now, I would argue they should be, and based on a common understanding of Scripture, I think that's something we can work toward. But our faith is not based on where we stand on life issues or where we stand on the use of the organ or the use of the vestments or the use of... These things are not our faith in Jesus Christ. Does our faith in Jesus Christ shape these things? Yes, but the arrow flows from Jesus to these other things, not from life or creation or vestments or organs or take your pick towards Jesus. It starts with Christ. He is the cornerstone. Everything flows from that foundation. And as long as we keep the the arrow of causation pointing from Jesus to those things that the visible church or the church in our perspective does, all right, go go team go. And I think that's where the the conversations get hung up a lot. Um, and I see them is is you know 
are we talking about these are the words of Jesus, you know, scripture, mm-hmm. uh, you know, God's revealed word to us, or are we just simply talking about our concept of church? And I think this is where uh, the Lutherans in Rome are talking past each other at this point because they're they're not talking from the same perspective. They're not talking from the basis and, and perspective of God's word and scripture on what the church is and 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 God flowing to us. They're they're just you know church ink. You know they're talking from that perspective. I want to ask for a little clarity from something you said, Pastor Hill, because you you said it, it is not necessary that that every i'm trying to get your words exact right that, that every christian in the congregation be actively pro-life and in that i, I would agree with you mm-hmm. with the emphasis on the word actively right mm-hmm. but there is a that, that i don't want people to miss here that you're saying something like you can actually be pro-choice as a christian and that this is a acceptable belief right so if if i have a a, a young person come to me and say pastor i'm pregnant i would like to have an abortion and they're a member of my church, I do not have the freedom to say, yeah, it's all right. You know, it's audio offer, right? I have to say, you're not allowed to do that. That's not an option for you as a Christian. If I have someone come and say to me, I'm a Christian and I had an abortion, I got a different answer. It's, well, you're forgiven, right? Mm-hmm. So it, it, you got that, that law gospel dynamic going on there a little bit. But so, but, but you were more emphasizing that you don't have to like go to all the rallies and all the meetings and be like this political gung-ho pro-lifer just because Christianity is in fact anti-murder <laughs> right and and this this is part of the visible church uh conundrum that we face hmm. is there comes a point where the church is built around christ and by christ and is not built around take your pick i know sometimes sometimes it's a little bit easier to have the same conversation not about life issues but maybe about creation hmm. because i know some folks who speak the same way about creation right. e- and and i've heard people even boldly state you can't be a christian if you don't believe in creation to which i would say i don't know you you can believe in jesus and have questions about creation you can believe in jesus and uh, want to to consider more what scripture says about how the world came to be but to you can be a christian without creation you can be a christian and be pro-choice however there there's still a lot of grappling with god's word there to be done and and i would argue that god's word is clear on both creation yeah, yeah, yeah. and abortion and and this isn't a choose your own ending kind of a faith but i guess what you're kind of saying there is that i think this is valuable it, it's what we danced around a little bit already you can be a heterodox christian it's possible mm-hmm. to be a christian with false beliefs you cannot be a heretical Christian. That is, you cannot deny that Jesus has risen from the dead, right? You cannot deny that he is your savior. And once you're at that point, you have gone beyond heterodoxy. The, the, can, the can other you do flip me a favor side of the danger, define heterodoxy and yes, heretical? Yeah. Okay. The other flip side of the danger, though, would be that you would let the the heterodoxy sit there as if it never leads to heresy. The difference would be exactly, I think, what I, what I just tried to say, a... A false teaching which removes Christ, the foundation, heresy. It, mm-hmm. It's gone. There's no belief in Jesus anymore in some way that's very, very clear. Or a, uh, a, a 
correlated belief that Jesus has given us, say, you shall not murder, murder is wrong, you shouldn't kill babies, which you have, you've, you've tripped up on that one, but not in such a way where you have removed the death of Jesus Christ for you from your belief system, right? And that would be heterodoxy, a slightly false teaching, a false teaching that's on the parameter. The, the danger, though, again, is that we would think somehow, oh, it's on the parameter, it's not going to affect anything. They don't just stay on the parameter. They, they, the, the, the heterodox teaching works its way into the center and then tries to displace the center and get rid of Christ at the center. To use the word we were using before that I thought was really helpful, uh, those heterodox teachings, those on the edge, not in line with scripture ideas, unravel faith. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah. I, and I think that unravel word is really helpful because heterodoxy leads to heresy given enough time and given yes. enough sinful inclination. Yes. Which is exactly the point they're making yes. here. And, and and I think to bring it home too, I mean, so so we would say, you know, even another church body that bears the name Lutheran, the ELCA, Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, you know, they have a lot of heterodox beliefs in there. Now, I think it's very, very dangerous, especially for that denomination and anyone who belongs to that denomination, I think it quickly leads you into heresy in a whole host of ways. But are we prepared to say that they're not Christian, right? And so this is where we say, all right, so you're, you're clearly drawn to Christ in some way, all right? You, you confess with your mouth Christ, all right? So now let's talk about what Christ has also said in his holy word. And there we have the real problem that, especially for that church body that I just named, the ELCA, they, they believe that something like scripture only contains God's word, that it is not God's word uh, in its entirety. And so, I mean, it becomes this very uh, difficult thing to navigate again when, yeah. when you're trying to understand the perspective and it becomes very messy. But but ultimately what we're talking about is this is Christ. This is what he has done. This is what he delivers to us. And then because you confess that, we also need to have conversations about these other things that are included in what God surely says and has revealed to us. I think that the the existence of heterodoxy in in us as individuals, because we are going to have it on a daily basis that the word is fighting against, in denominations, whether you have more or less, what we're trying to confess here is that we believe it's always going to be in the church. That means amongst real Christians, but that it's also still eternally dangerous and the, the 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 work of the wolf or the work of the lion or the dragon whatever you want to say trying to spin us even further out right and so we want to call it what it is and we want to see when things that we love have become that but we also want to do so in such a way where we don't make salvation a, a legal requirement that you achieve by being perfectly orthodox right that is somehow we turn orthodoxy into a form of self-justification at the end of the day i mean it is a phenomenal conversation because i don't I mean we, i don't know how much we've we've really dug into the text but we're we're wrestling with some really challenging stuff we are and this is exactly how saint paul speaks in and the other uh epistle writers as well, how they speak to the church in the decades after Jesus' ascension, where they write, and especially I think of, of Paul writing to the Galatians or to the Corinthians. When he writes to the Galatians, he says, hey, who bewitched you guys? Hmm. You guys are buying into another gospel. Heresy, right? Hmm, yeah. uh, this idea of of you need to do something in addition to your uh, in addition to your faith in order to really be a Christian. The you need tos, uh, you need to be circumcised or you can't be saved. Uh-oh. Uh oh, yeah. Now we have a problem. Uh, 
or as he writes to the Corinthian church, you guys are letting somebody live in your midst who has his father's wife. This cannot be among Christians. You can't just wink and nod at this. Uh, and so Paul very clearly says, you guys were you guys were doing so well, and then you were bewitched, you were led away, and and he addresses these things out of that pastoral attitude and out of a pastoral heart of speaking the truth of Christ and saying, remember guys, this is all about Jesus. Does Jesus want you winking and nodding at sin? Does Jesus want you adding things to his word? No! And, and in both of those, uh, in all of his letters, he addresses them as brothers. He does. He, he does, but and, I, I yeah. really want to draw this, uh, this point, though, because with Galatia, he addresses them as brothers, and yet he says, like, I'm not sure about you, plural. Like, I'm really worried about all of you being church anymore since you're you're allowing this. With Corinth, he's like, you guys are still church. That one guy, you got to tell him he's no longer a Christian. <laughs> you know, the and, one guy. But you, even though you're enduring this and it's wrong of you to do that, you're not not Christians yet. But Galatia, he's like, man, he's right on the edge. But in some other parts, he says, I wish that they were cut off. Sure, fair um, enough. Those who are yeah. who are leading you in this yeah. direction. And, yeah? and so... It, and there's Paul, a pun involved. Yeah, and there's a there's an awesome pun in in Galatians chapter five, but we have to save that Galatians six. Sorry, we have to save that for another day. But but I think it talks to again what we we're talking about earlier when when you confess Christ with your mouth, right? You know, so he addresses them as brothers, and mm -hmm. he says, you know, you're, you're confessing Christ, but do you realize that by what you're actually confessing? By your actions, by your by the other words that you're using and so forth, that you're actually denying Christ. Right. And that's right. a very dangerous thing that makes me unsure. Right. And so this is the the kind of conversations that we constantly have to to have. I mean, it comes up in a whole host of issues. You know, I you know, we face them as you face those who are unrepentant about the way that they're living in sexual sin, you know, and things like that. I, and here I, not even the homosexual issue, but just yeah. cohabitation. You know, yeah, cohabitation, living together, having sex outside of marriage, things like that. You you're know, so it's like you're confessing Christ, but what you're doing indeed uh, is is you know not confessing Christ. You're 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 confessing that you believe that Christ has nothing to say about this. Use of pornography, habitual lust. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's an un right. unending list. Right. right. Uh, Having hate and and you know uh, you know just wanting to pick a fight with everyone. You know, I mean, all of these things become yeah, being power, you know, power hungry in the voters' meeting. Yeah. I mean, and, it's yeah. just it's endless. Right. And from time to time, there is a. Uh, there's this desire, at least within my own sinful flesh, to, to justify myself and to say, oh, well, here is a list of the big bad sins. And as long as I don't commit any of the big bad sins, I can do some of the less bad sins. Gossip and stretching the truth and being a little bit prideful. Well, everybody's those things, so that's okay. As long as I stay away from the really bad list, you know, axe murder, bank robbery, as long as I don't do those things, I'm okay. Um, at, at least that's what my flesh tries to tell me. My flesh is also wrong and corrupted by sin. And I think it's important to recognize that that when the Word of God speaks to us, it speaks to us completely and holistically, and there aren't less bad sins. Mm. Well, we always want to define the more bad sins as the ones I'm not doing. Bingo. So whichever ones you're doing and I'm not doing, those are more bad. The ones that I'm doing, well, those are the ones that are less bad. Those are the venial, right, as opposed to the mortal. The real trick, then, is to come back and say, well, what sin is what Scripture says is sin, right? The Ten Commandments, those are the things that define what sin really is, ultimately. The Sermon on the Mount, Jesus takes those Ten Commandments and he presses them down to their 
their spiritual level. He gives them the what does this mean? Yes, and all of it is mortal sin to quote Luther here, until you believe it's mortal sin and then all of it's venial, all of it's covered in Jesus, not that you would still go and do it, right? But that that you are repentant of it, that you believe is evil and want to see it removed from you, particularly then in the teaching of the church that the true teacher would hold these things as true, as opposed to the false teacher, which is not going to take that stand. Yeah? And that's kind of the end of our paragraph. The real distinguishing mark then, if, if you have the teacher, and this is where, you know, I mentioned the ELCA earlier, but a whole host of denominations out there. If you've made the move to say, oh, no, these things aren't sin. No, now you're a false teacher. Now you're a wolf, right? You are actively leading people into false belief that is leading them ultimately away from Christ and the truth of his word. And that's dangerous. All right. Great, great uh, head nods, guys. All right. (laughs) You bet. That's what we're best at. Pastor, how about, since you read so well, how about I have you pick up reading? Is it you bet and the LCMS and ELCA is you betcha, right? I don't know. I, just that, that's a bad Minnesota joke. Yeah. Go, go ahead. I, wow. Okay. <laughs> Paragraph 22 goes like this. Just as the church has the promise that it will always have the Holy Spirit, so it also has warnings that there will be wicked teachers and wolves. Yet, the church, in the proper sense, has the Holy Spirit. Although wolves and r- wicked teachers run rampant in the church, they are not properly Christ's kingdom. Just as Lyra also testifies when he says, The church does not consist of people in power or ecclesiastical or secular dignity because many princes and archbishops and others of lower rank have been found to have apostatized from the faith. Therefore, the church consists of those persons in whom there is true knowledge and confession of faith and truth. So far the quote. We have said nothing more in our confessions than what Lyra says here. Lyra being a Roman Catholic theologian who was accepted. And so they're trying to show that we're just saying what the church has always said. Yeah, what the, what the church has always confessed. Yeah. Right? yeah. And and this is, again, I think the helpful point because of where we, we so often live. I mean, one of the, the accusations often thrown at Christians is, oh, the church is full of hypocrites. And you see, you guys don't even agree on these things. And I mean, what, what they're acknowledging you know, I, I think somewhat helpfully, you know, the those outside the church have a, a really good perspective sometimes on the church of, you know, look, you, you guys have false teachers among you, right? And you call them the church and it's like, yes, and we need to deal with them. Um, but but recognize also, I mean, the, you know, they, they say, you know, just the hypocrites, you know, and that's why I don't go. And it's like, well, there's always room for one more, you know, it's the old you know, kitschy, you know, kind of saying to it, but it is true. I mean, we, we, to, to some extent, this is life in the church militant. Hmm. It's messy. It, it, we have the promise, the assurance from God's word is not the promise of the gospel, but it's, it's a promise from Jesus himself that says, Hey, they're going to be there, right? They're going to always be there. And so until he comes back in glory and then brings about the perfect, right? The, the true church unto life everlasting, but as we still live here, this is life in the church militant. Hey, it, yeah, it gets messy. It gets uncomfortable, and and we have to we have to deal with these things, and and that's where we we need to to always remember as we wrestle with them that we do so in love, you know. And and the goal is to win our brother to the truth, and that we speak from the truth of God's word, uh, and that we we recognize that 
yeah, we all have these tensions to errors within us and so forth. We don't throw up our hands and surrender to it and just say, oh, well, I've got my own errors. You know, you've got your own errors. That's not, that's not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about is, you know, that when I go to you, I recognize I want to win you to the truth. And so I'm going to talk to you in love and recognize that, you know, I have my spots where I don't see that I don't have the truth in some place. And I need people to speak in love to me, to win me to the truth as they have this perspective that I don't have. What is the church militant against, right? What, 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 that phrase, what, what are we a military for? It's not to win people with the sword. It is with the sword of God's word to keep, guard, cherish what God's word has, has actually said. Yeah, and that's exactly what the church does. Sometimes we talk about this this distinction between the church militant and the church triumphant, uh, being that the church militant is the church pre-death or pre-resurrection, and the church triumphant is the church post-death or post-resurrection. But I think that there's really a helpful way of saying the church is always triumphant. And the church is always militant in that it confesses Jesus Christ as Lord. We are in training for that day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And for us in the church, that has already begun. We're already doing it. Mm-hmm. And so our our militarization of the church, and maybe that maybe that's the right term, maybe it's not, but our militarization is one of confessing Christ. And we're not out for any kind of political authority or secular authority or civil authority or even churchly authority. We are simply out to confess Jesus because that's what the church does. And the the church confesses Jesus and here we go. Very well said. And again, it's a matter of perspective and the perspective is God's. And our bond in the true church is through Christ Jesus, our Lord, whom we will continue to confess. Thank you to my cohort of Christ-confessing Concordians here, Pastor Jonathan Fiss, Pastor Peter Illo, and I'm Pastor Sean Smith. Until that day when Christ comes again, keep confessing, church.